So today, as part of our podcast series, which is powered by Upside Global, we have the honor to interview Marco Nunez, the former head of the trainer for the LA Lakers. So Marco, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Julian, for having me. So great. So Marco, what I wanted to talk to you about today was talk about your background and the role that you played at the Lakers. Uh, also, okay. I'd like to talk about the impact of COVID-19 and your top three favorite technologies. How does it sound? That sounds perfect. Great. So maybe to get started, could you tell us about your background and how you got started in the world of elite sports? Yeah, so um, I went to school specifically to um, become an athletic trainer and work in sports medicine. Yeah. Um, while I was in college, I, I knew or I had the desire of trying to work in the professional setting. That's where I kind of wanted to pursue my career and hopefully end up there. Um, I started and had the great opportunity to um, work with the uh, LA Avengers. They were a small arena football team out here in LA. I worked with them for about four years, slowly worked my way up. Um, eventually, uh, I spent four years as, as an assistant athletic trainer with the LA Avengers, then got hired on as the head athletic trainer with the Carolina Cobras out in, North, in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. I did that for one year, came back yeah. to Southern California, and had the great opportunity to work and got hired as the head athletic trainer for the Los Angeles Sparks, the WNBA team. Yeah, um, I think that was a huge opportunity for me because at the time, the Sparks were owned by the LA Lakers. So Dr. Jerry Buss owned the team. Now, yeah. if you don't know, Dr. Jerry Buss is also the owner or was the owner of the LA Lakers. Yeah. Um, the LA Sparks, our facility and our locker room and our training room was directly across the hallway from the LA Lakers. So I had a great, I had the opportunity to meet Gary Vitti, the head athletic trainer. I yeah. had the opportunity to meet the rest of the staff. And slowly by slowly, you know, I joined them as far as working as an internship during the summer with them, help or yeah. during, I'm sorry, during training camp, helping them out. Uh, whenever the team would leave and there was a player that was behind injured, they would leave me, give me the responsibility to continue their rehab while they were traveling. I would kind of work with them here and there. Yeah. Uh, eventually, the Lakers also purchased a development team called, back then they were called the LA Defenders. Now they're called the South Bay Lakers. I got hired for that position as a head athletic trainer. So I kind of got to work close, a little, even more closely with the LA Lakers teams. Eventually, a position opened up with the LA Lakers as the assistant athletic trainer slash assistant rehab specialist slash assistant strength and conditioning coach, uh, strength and conditioning specialist. And I got hired on for that position. Um, I did that for about eight years. And then eventually Gary, head athletic trainer, uh, retired. And I was promoted yeah. to head performance athletic trainer for the last, my last three, four years with the organization. That's great. And I know Gary, I, I met him uh, actually a few times. It's great. Yeah. So, um, now, could you tell us about your experience working for the Lakers as the uh, head of the trainer and what were the biggest challenges for you on a daily basis? That, on a daily basis? Yeah, so, um, you know, when, when I took over, ooh, hold, hold on one second, hold on one second, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Julian. Okay. No uh, can you, you want to repeat the question again? I'm sorry. Yeah. So, could you please tell us about your experience working for the Lakers as an head of a trainer and what were the biggest challenges for you on a daily basis? 
Yeah, so, um, you know, I was excited when I was offered the position. I was looking forward to it. Um, you know, as a young athletic trainer, when I first started out, I wanted to have the challenge of working with a huge organization. And, uh, you know, besides the Dallas Cowboys or the New York Yankees, you can't get anything bigger than the L.A. Lakers. Um, yeah. We were huge in spotlight. Um, not only that, but the previous head athletic trainer, Gary Beatty, had been in that seat for 32 years. So, That's a long time. Um, yeah, that's a long time. So those were some huge shoes um, for me to fill. Um, so as you know, as as excited as I was, I was also nervous at the same time. Oh, sure. Um, and, and and butterflies were going, but but I felt I was ready. I felt I was prepared for it after eight years. Um, you know, observing how he operated and how their organization operated and how they went on. So I, I guess you know my, one of my big first challenges was just to fill those those shoes from Garaviti. Mm-hmm. Um, Second, um, I also kind of wanted to establish my own self, my own philosophy with the organization as far as the sports medicine aspect. The other thing I also wanted to introduce is I know when uh, the years with the Lakers, we didn't have much of uh, sports science technology. Um, We didn't do much uh, data and and analytics, Mm -hmm. um, anything of that sort. And I wanted to kind of slowly start introducing some new uh, tactics in, in that area with the organization. Yeah. biometrics, um, force play testing, you know, anything like that. But at the same time, I knew that I couldn't just go in there my first year, second year and just start like, Hey, let's do everything. You know, yeah. there's a lot of things. So I want to slowly kind of progress through some things and more importantly, make sure that the athletes were receptive to it. Cause at the end of the day, if the athletes are not receptive to whatever technology you're using, whatever, you, whatever you're tracking, whatever biometrics you're using, it, it doesn't matter how good that technology is. doesn't matter how good that uh, data is. The athletes aren't cooperative. They're not receptive to it. It, it needs nothing. I, you know, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I was visiting um, a, an NBA team in Southern Florida. You know, you can guess who that is. But yep. we had a conversation about, you know, all those technologies. And yep. to your point, the biggest problem with all those technologies is, does it fit into the workflow? Is it disrupting Correct. the daily routine? Because many times those startups, they don't think about that, right? Exactly. And that's why it fails, right? So. Exactly, 100%. And that's the one thing about uh, with a lot of teams or just organizations, whether it's collegiate, professional, you know, uh, sometimes I get frustrated when I see some organizations try to kind of, like I said, try to find, bring in a technology and force it into them. I've always had to believe, okay, well, what do you need as a team? What are you missing? How can you improve it? First, start mm-hmm. with what you're missing. Analyze your own team yourself. Analyze your yeah. client. Analyze your athlete. Find out what's going on. And then work that way. And I'll give you a prime example because one of the first technologies that that, that I introduced um, was uh, we created a customized hydration program for athletes. Yeah. And um, we started do, we did sweat analysis. And the reason was why it, was we did it through Gatorade. Gatorade. Yes. So so at the time um, we uh, the Lakers were had a partnership with Gatorade GSSI yeah. uh, Institute. So I called them up, they came down. And of course, when I had the meeting with them, they're like, hey, we could do, we have 12 things we could do. We could do blood analysis. We could do saliva yeah. analysis. We could do sweat analysis. We could do force play time. I'm like, hold on, I'm like, hold on, time yeah. out. Let's slow down here. Let's speak one or two things. <laughs> now, I went with the sweat analysis right off the bat in the hydration program. And the reason why is we had an athlete um, that every time we traveled on clockwork, mm-hmm. let's say we leave a city and we get to the new city, Every, every single time, it would never fail. About two o'clock in the morning when we'd land, he would call me, hey, Marco, I have a headache. Marco, I have a headache. Marco, I mean, it was like on the dot. I already knew he was, was going to have a headache. So but eventually we He was getting dehydrated. Ah, uh, you know where I'm going. Yeah. <laughs> so um, 
we decided to do his, uh, we did, we, we, we reanalyzed his blood work and we yeah. noticed uh, some discrepancies. Mm -hmm. um, so then we, that's when we introduced the sweat analysis. We, I bought it for specifically for him, but we decided to do the whole team and you're spot on. Bottom line is that this athlete was already in a dehydrated stage, even before he started playing, even before mm -hmm. he started practicing. So Why, by the time is, that? He was done, Why is that? His, his, his levels, he wasn't absorbing them and we're trying to kind of figure out, or he just wasn't consuming the proper fluids for his body. Um, and once we discovered that we created a customized program for him as far as hydration. And then after that, he never called me again for, um, complaining about headaches except for one time, but I think that was more of a hangover headache. That was a whole different mm -hmm. issue. Um, but that was one of the issues we were able to solve, but then it also applied to, to the rest of the athletes. So every time I, I talk to, you know, to organizations, I'm like, Hey, find out what you need first. Don't start mm -hmm. bringing stuff in, find out what you need and then go out there and see what fits for you. Uh, let me let me ask you. Did you use the 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 Gatorade patch that they did they use? Now we did have to use a Gatorade patch because we were sponsored by Gatorade, so we had to use a pot. They sent a, sent a, sent us over some pots. We tracked the athletes. They had the weight scale, the GX system. We had the scale mm -hmm. in there. We had our athletes uh, weigh themselves every single day before they went on the court. It was right by on. It was a quick thing. They just put their ID number. They weighed themselves, went on the court. As they come off, put their ID number, weighed themselves off the court. And so we tracked them and that way we were able to modify the hydration programs as needed, especially when we traveled, especially when we went to like high altitude cities, if we went to high, high, you know, humidity like Denver, cities, Colorado, yeah, yeah. exactly. Denver, Utah were high, you know, it was very dry up there. Now, granted we traveled, we played in the, in the fall. So going to like Miami or Florida, there wasn't much of a hydration issue. And then too, we mm -hmm. play indoors. So because we play indoors is not a big factor. Um, yeah. like teams that play outdoors. So it wasn't like a huge thing, but it was, it wasn't enough that it was effective for our athletes. And then we had other athletes that constantly had uh, issues with cramping and that's where we kind of did it. So that was kind of the, one of the first, um, I guess, sports science in a sense, uh, biometrics that we kind of, I, I introduced when I came in after that, the next year we introduced a little bit of uh, saliva analysis. Um, I know JSA wanted us to do like the, uh, the blood work, the blood test mm -hmm. with the, with the prick the needle, but a lot of our athletes, don't like needles and didn't want yeah. to do needles. I knew that, you know, like I said, if, if, if the athletes are not receptive, they're not willing to do it. Doesn't matter do it. What, yeah. What matter, what doesn't matter what information is going to give you. If they, if they don't do it, it's pointless. Yeah. Um, then the, the third year we introduced a force plate testing. Um, and, and slowly every year we introduced one thing. We're using thing. like the Vlad, the, the Vlad force plate or any, anything else. Uh, mm -hmm. No, they, they It wasn't Vla, uh, the Vlad one. I forgot the, the ones they had, um, so, so GSSI had uh, specific ones that they brought in. Now, the ones that I liked about GSSI is that one, we always use two force plates. I've never been a fan of one force plates, depending on what you're doing. I, I get why you can use one force plate, but I like using two force plates. Um, and then two, the force plates that we use were wide enough and long enough, you know, wide enough that when an athlete jumped, they didn't have to worry about, am I going to hit the mark type of thing? Yeah. That's, that's the other thing also with force plate testing that I learned is um, oftentimes the, the thought process of the athlete, you know, kind of worried about hitting the force plate can slow their movement down and can pretty much change the mechanics. So, you know, we, we had an athlete that we were doing some assessments on because he was returning from an ACL injury and we took him to the facility that they had a force plate on the ground, but it was a very small, it was your standard force plate, like maybe uh, 12 inches by 12 inches or not, probably a little more, but you know, something that sort. And what he had to do, he had to sprint towards a force plate, right? Step, change direction. Mm -hmm. But as I was observing him, you can see in the video that as he was as he was going full 
he was approaching the force plate, he started slowing down because he was worried oh, the force plate. So then you didn't get true numbers, so to speak. You got numbers and it was enough to give you some data. But the fact that the athlete had to kind of change their speed. So is it, it was, is it kind of like when you're trying to hit a, a golf swing and you got the ball in front of you and then you, uh -huh. you don't you don't swing in the same way with, without the ball? You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, because because exactly. So it changes your dynamics. It changes your movement. It changes your speed a little bit. Now, it's not it may not be a dramatic, dramatic change, but it's enough to change it that the data that you get is going to be different then you do it. Like for example, when, when we do, um, when I, there, there was a uh, presentation that I did and I think I was, I was looking at this is that when you, when you have an athlete and you're testing their change of direction, mm -hmm. instead of telling them, Hey, when you get to the cone, I need you to stop and turn 45 degrees, turn 30 degrees, whatever it is, instead of giving them one mark, it's better that you give them an area, give them like mm -hmm. 10, yard, 10 yards to say, when you, whenever you get between these two cones, whenever yeah. you feel comfortable, you change direction. That way they're going at full speed. They don't have to worry about hitting that mark. They, they move and they change when they feel comfortable. And then you can analyze it better because you're actually getting better numbers and a true reading, so to speak, versus if you tell them, hey, when you get to this cone, because now the athlete's going to be worried, okay, I'm going to go run as fast as I can, but I don't want to miss a mark. So I'm going to slow down a little bit to be able to go with it. Instead of giving them a mark, give them a range. Hey, yeah. between these two poles, whenever you get there, whenever you feel comfortable, boom, turn. Yeah. And, and uh, so I know, you know, I mentioned, I know Gary VT and at some uh -huh. point he was also working with Plantiga and there are yes. smart insults to measure the force asymmetries uh, to potentially prevent injuries. Right. Yep. So were you still using Plantiga at that point when you took over? Uh, no. So I, uh, we weren't using Plantiga. Uh, we were kind of testing them. I think one of the issues that they had from what I remember is yeah. that it, they had difficulty uh, testing or, or determining change of direction. So yeah. if you ran straight, you were able to get in, uh, data and information. But if you had a player kind of pivot and turn, the friction that was involved in it disrupted the data and disrupted the numbers so and anything accurate. So um, and in basketball, it's all about change of direction. Yeah. Um, now, the one company we did use, and I, I think I introduced it um, even before I took over as head athletic trainer, was um, uh, Dorsa V. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know. Yes, I know them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. So we started using them in 2000. I took, wait, I took over in 2016. I think we started using them in like about 2013, mm -hmm. um, uh, going into it. And uh, for a couple of reasons. Now, one, yes, it's just an algorithm. And, you know, the huge argument is, hey, it's just an algorithm. It doesn't give you true numbers. The best way to do it is do like a, a camera system or do a, a force plate testing, you know, something where it's actual in the ground and you're actually getting true numbers. And I agree with those, right? Yeah. But the problem with the camera systems, you can spend $50,000, $100,000, $150,000. You can spend half a million dollars on a great camera system in your facility, right? Mm -hmm. But when you're traveling for two weeks and you need to retest an athlete, you cannot take care of the camera with you. You mm -hmm. cannot take you cannot take yeah. the cameras with you. See what I'm saying? So, so that goes back yeah. to you know the workflow, right? Is that exactly exactly? So, so sometimes you have to compromise a little bit, and this is what you know. When I did the research, we looked at Dorsa V, and we decided that this was kind of the best value for for the dollar, and we were able to travel with it and take it where we wanted. Now, yes, granted, I agree with everybody. It's just an algorithm. It's not giving you the true numbers. But mm -hmm. here's the thing about it. As long as you have a true baseline and you get a proper baseline, then you have something to compare it to. Now, yeah. again, it's not going to be the accurate, but as long as you have a baseline number for your athlete, when you're returning them to play from an injury or you're rehabbing them, now you have something to compare it to. It's always about the baseline number. Like you can't compare apples to apples as long as, it's, oh no, I mean, I'm sorry, I can't compare apples to oranges. 
as long as it's apples to apples. Um, just like when I was um, working with the company uh, Strive, they sent me some yeah. information because there was a, a football player in the NFL that, that they were using the shorts um, and he was returning from an ACL injury. It's like, hey, Mark, can you look at the data? Can you look at the number? Let us know what the numbers mean. Are they looking yeah. good? And my question was, okay, well, what are his baseline numbers? And they're like, well, we don't have any baseline you numbers. Any? So, so I'm like, these numbers are just irrelevant then. They, they just yeah. can't compare to anything yeah. um, because everybody's different. Um, just, you know, just like the, 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 the um, NOR boards. Now, I know you get normative data, and those are general normative data analysis. But it's yeah. always great to have normative data or data that's that's for that individual to be able to compare because everybody's slightly different. Yeah. Um, yes, the normative data, the studies that you have there, you can utilize them. It, 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 it's, it's a guide. It, it helps you. It guides you through the process. But it's better if you actually have their baseline number. I think it makes sense. It totally makes sense. So my next question was more around your favorite technologies and why. Mm -hmm. But I think you kind of talk about some technologies. <laughs> but what, yeah. are, what are your favorite technologies that you really liked? Um, so not, not to like, uh, uh, promote or anything like that, but I do like the Stripe technology that I've been using. Oh, see, that's yeah. The one, yeah. That's the one thing that I do, you know, I've had a couple of companies reach out to me and somebody asked me the same question. Hey, Marco, when somebody reaches out to you to kind of promote them or work with them, do you just, you know, if they pay you, do you just, Hey, I'll go ahead and do it. Yeah. My answer is no, you know, I have to, I have to like the technology. I have to understand the technology. I have to kind of be able to visualize and see this technology being utilized in, in rehab and strength yeah. condition and performance. And I do see Strive because what, what it, so what, what the Strive technology does is it identifies muscular output discrepancies and it tells you when an, an athlete is compensating in, in a specific muscle or, or they're lacking muscular output. Um, yeah. For example, you know, there's the FMS screenings out there and, and a lot of people but a lot of teams use FMS screenings with their athletes and there's nothing wrong with the FMS screening. But the one thing about the FMS screening is that there's a pretty good learning curve that if you haven't asked, ask an athlete to do the, the same assessment, you know, you do the assessment and then you give them a break, have them do, redo the assessments. Odds are they going to do better on the test Two, If you tell them what you're looking for, odds are they going to do better. And the reason why I say this, because I did a small little experiment myself. There's a company called uh, Fusionetics and this mm -hmm. is before they, they yeah, I know Fusionetics. Yeah. Yep. This is before they had the whole camera system and before they had the room, right? So they had a, a subjective assessment very similar to FMS. Um, and this, God, this is also like 2012 or something like that, or, thir or 13, um, when they approached about testing it out and looking at it. So um, th so they gave it to me, I looked at it, I, I, I did this assessment with their athletes and I decided to separate the team into two halves, right? So the first half of the athletes, I just tested them, didn't tell them what it was, didn't tell them what I was looking for. And they all scored like a kind of yellowish numbers. A few of them scored red, right? The second half of the test, I told them exactly what I'm looking for. Hey, when you when you do a single leg squat, this is what I'm looking for. When you do a double leg squat, this is what I'm looking for. Well, most of them were the most of them rank in the green, and they all rank that they were normal. So mm -hmm. it's kind of interesting how to do it. Now, something like Stripe Tech, which gives you the muscular output, it the, the athlete cannot cheat. Either, either the muscle is going to fire or the muscle is not going to fire. You can't really force a muscle to fire as much as you want if, if, if the strength isn't there or the muscular output yeah. isn't there. So it doesn't allow you to cheat. Where something of the other assessments, they can cheat. So I like that's one of the huge reasons I like it. Um, second, I'm a big proponent about sleep and sleep patterning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, uh, you know, I always talk about how sleep is number one, and I, I haven't heard anybody disagree with me that sleep is the number one way uh, to recover. And yeah. what I tell everybody, it's also free. Doesn't yeah. cost you. Nah, that's right. <laughs> it's free. Everybody tries to do, you know, normal text. Everybody tries to do 
hyper, you know, all these other companies, you know, all the things we got to do, IV drips. I'm like, dude, just sleep. If you sleep, you yeah, But if they cannot sleep, public. because what happened is, I give an example, right? In South America, yeah. I've worked with some Brazilian soccer teams. Yep. Those guys are done playing at 11.30 p.m. at night. Ah, and they're yep. going to go and have dinner. Then they, at one o'clock in the morning, that's when they start sleeping. But they can't sleep because of the adrenaline. So Correct. Yeah. what do you do? So, so- so that's what you what you kind of try to track their the sleep patterns or even adjust the practices type of thing to it. Um, so so I'm, I'm a huge proponent of my sleep. So I like technology that also helps you track your the, their sleep pattern um, mm-hmm. regarding it, whether it's the ring. You know, I know there's a ring one, there's bracelets. There's a different bunch of different uh, components regarding that as well. Yeah. Um, so I so tell I you, of, I, I was just talking to a company this week. It's uh-huh. an European company. They build the bracelets that, that you wear and I make you fall asleep. Right? Ah. And it kills the pain at the same time. So they're studying in a medical field, but now they're looking into getting into sports. Okay. So, and then I work, you know, I know the folks at Sana, they build a smart sleeping mask using the policies of lights and sound, which make you sleep yes. in 15 minutes. Okay. So, uh, and there's another company called Silent Mode. It's a bit different because they're using a sound and then breathing exercise through an app. So, oh, wow. Uh, and I use it too. Make me sleep in 15 minutes. I'm not, I'm not kidding. So See, yeah. So so technology like that that helps you sleep. Um, I'm a huge proponent about, and I, I would love you know to be able to kind of have access to all that stuff. But yeah, yeah, so, I, can, I, yeah I can I can re- I can put you in touch. That's no problem. Yeah, that'd so, be awesome. Yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, now the, my next question is more about you know the, so in the NBA right, like you said earlier, they don't allow the user wearable technology during live games. Okay. Do you think that the NBA would at some point allow the user wearables? And I'm asking this because, again, I was talking to a, a top executive from an NBA team uh, uh-huh. about two months ago. And his take, take, take was that they were going to allow the user wearables. Why? Because if they get a portion of the sports betting, okay, if the NBA uh-huh. Player Association gets a cut of it, and if the NBA teams gets a cut of it, and if uh-huh. the NBA, then all of a sudden, right, I think they might jump in. Uh, they might jump in and allow it. Uh, just like in, and in the NFL, they're already talking about the NFL making $270 million from sports betting this year. So in yep. revenue. So what, what, what is your take on that? Um, well, money, when money is involved, um, it, 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 it always comes down to money at yeah. the end of the day type of thing i mean that's the bottom line but you tell me um, the story right you tell me what happened many years ago right? <laughs> yeah so yeah so the, the, there's there's a, a couple of years ago um there was a uh, there's no there's probably about 10 12 years ago um the league did not allow us to utilize so as part of the the, the agreement for example so the league has an agreement with a uniform company right so whether it was, yeah. uh, i think back then it was adidas now it's nike yeah and Part of the agreement is that every player has to wear a certain the outfit, meaning the jersey has to be Nike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have a Nike logo. Any wristbands has to have Nike. Socks have to have Nike logo. Everything has to have Nike, Nike logo, right? Because Nike paid money to, to, to so athletes can wear only Nike stuff, right? Yeah. So anything that was non-Nike stuff, would not be allowed, and that that and that, and that also means um, tape. Any tape, any taping, any brace that would use. So if we if we had to put a, a player on an ankle brace, we had to make sure we took off the logo, or we had mm-hmm. to make sure we cover it somehow. It, we had to put him in a shoulder brace because they had a shoulder injury, 
um, the logo couldn't show. Um, I think oh, there was a company, uh, Barfin, uh, for a while there, it was, it's a very popular knee sleeve that players would wear, but we had a, Barfin ended up selling knee, break, knee sleeves to, to NBA teams, but without their logo. And I think eventually they, they made a deal with the NBA, so now you can use their logo type of thing. Yeah. So yeah, exactly also, right. Yeah. So it comes down to money type of thing. Um, the example I think you and I were talking about is uh, kinesio tape, right? Mm-hmm. Um, kinesio tape is commonly used in, in all sports. Um, you know, I personally, I'm not 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 that I'm not a fan of it. I it, it, it is what it is. I don't I have much of it. I haven't heard any major science or research on it. Um, but some athletes love it and they will use it. And if it makes them feel better, by all means, it's not going to hurt them. Um, so in order for us to use uh, kinesio tape back then, we had to get a medical approval from the league and submit it, and they kind of had to approve it. And it, that was a, that was just a process. And anything standard, whether it was a shoulder brace, whether it was an ankle brace, whatever it was, that's how it occurred. Um, but not until I think couple, afterwards, not until uh, a specific kinesio tape company made a deal with um, the, the league that they finally allowed us and permitted us to use kinesio tape freely. Yeah. But we had to, but we had to use the kinesio tape that was um, uh, partnered up with the league. So just that specific tape type of thing. Yeah. Um, so again, it comes down to money, and just like you said, as far as some of the technology that they're looking at, the NBA is looking at is you know once they figure out a way how to make money off of it, then that they'll go ahead and introduce it. The question is, the technology they use is it going to be worthwhile? Is it going to be beneficial for the teams? Is it going to be mm-hmm. beneficial for the sports medicine staff? That only time will tell, as they say. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. Um, next question is more around. So, if you might think about if you're you have a, unlimited resources, engineering resources, unlimited money, mm-hmm. if you could create any new technology that you that you want, mm-hmm. what would you build and why? What would it solve? What problem would it solve? Any technology. And Anything why? you want. Anything you want. So the first one that pops in my head would have to be, if, and, and I'm just thinking about NBA um, yeah. right now, uh, that the that the that the ground or the floor would be designed that the whole entire floor would be a a um, force plate. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So you can track the athlete's movements. Now you would have to take a step further because then now you're gonna have to be able to have a camera system that links with each 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 player, identifies each player. And every time they take a step from the right leg and left leg, you can yeah. distinguish their force between the right, left, how much movement they, they produce. Yeah. The third one would be being able to analyze their muscular output while they're making those movements to try yeah. to see where are the discrepancies, where are the movements. Because mm-hmm. like, for example, one of the things that, that, that I've always done, um, and I think uh, you know, we, we always test, like we do T-tests, we do uh, four-corner tests. And it's always based on time, right? So when Natalie does a four corner test, right? They, you know, they go to a cone, make a turn, 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 come right back. And it's always based on time, time, time and see how fast they can go. But if you, if you break down the, those, those every section in there, uh, an athlete can be fast going, accelerating forward, but they may be slow going backwards. The question is why? Is it because their quads are weak when they're backpedaling backwards? Um, so, it, so even though, you, you, we utilize time to track it. If someone has great time, it's like, okay, good. This person has great time. They're fast. But if we break it down, there's going to be an area that they're going to be, be slow. Same thing like with the T-test. They may be able to go fast and accelerate quickly pushing off the left leg, but they may be weak pushing off the right leg. So be able to identify type of thing. I'll, I'll give you a prime example right now. Um, I was working with a hockey athlete, right? Yeah. And um, we were using the Stripe technology. 
and we had him do the, Nord the Nordic hamstring curl, right? Yeah. And as we're doing the Nordic hamstring curl, we identified that his right, right hamstring was producing more force than the left one. So then my first, my first reaction was, okay, well, is the left one weak, right? So then I took him up and I did single leg RDLs because I wanted to test the hamstring. I wanted to stress each individual hamstring. And when we stress the individual hamstring, they were actually equal. The right one and the left one were producing the same amount of force when they were separate on their own. But when they used them together, he tend to use more the right leg. That's just his habit. That's just what he did. Now he yeah. was a hockey player. So then we got him on the ice and we had him just sprint. He was sprinting, 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 you know, just kind of taking off. And again, yeah. while he was sprinting, he was using more of his right glute and right hamstring. So he was more right leg dominant and he was mm -hmm. pushing off more from the right to try to get that acceleration and try to get the speed. Yeah. So my question was, if I can train him to, to create the same muscular output from the left leg while he's, while he's, while he's um, uh, running or while he's um, skating as he does on the right leg, can I increase his overall speed now? Because now he's going to have equal output from each side. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of interesting. So being able to identify the muscular outputs, as, so it would have to be a force plate that distinguishes each individual, distinguishes right and left leg, camera yeah. system that identifies the movements, and also some kind of censorship that identifies their muscular output as they're moving within that space area. And it has mm -hmm. to be that you can utilize during a practice and during a live game, because a live game and a practice are two different things versus a scrimmage versus if you're just training with the athlete. But see, I think to do that on a live game might be a bit of a challenge because, as you know, in the arenas, right, sometimes they remove all the floor for other events. So, I don't know, you have to be built into the floor system. You know what I mean? Uh, cool. I don't know how you would do that. But anyway, that's not my job to figure it out. That's <laughs> so Yeah, no, you're, yeah, it, it would be very hard because it would have to be very rigid. Uh, the yeah. force plates. Um, and obviously right now the floors in the NBA and anything, they, they, they have more of a bounce because you're trying mm -hmm. to reduce some of that friction, which, which I get, that's good. So it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a tough thing to, to be able to create it. I mean, obviously I don't think you use the, the, the current force plates, but I think eventually, hopefully later down the road, um, it has like, if you can put in like very tiny sensors underneath yeah. the floor that can, can and, and, and that sensor can detect like within a 12 inch radius mm -hmm. or something like that. And you just put a bunch of tiny, tiny little sensors everywhere, then maybe. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So hopefully, whoever is listening is a good engineer, <laughs> can figure it out. Yeah. As okay, long as you and I get a little bit of a credit that's for That's right, yeah, for the idea. Uh, okay, so last question. So obviously you work with one of the greatest, people who I believe is one of the greatest basketball player of all time, one yeah. of them being Kobe Bryant. And I, I think when, when the, the hit news, um, you know, what happened and you, we heard the passing of Kobe, it was a big shock for everybody. Um, yeah. And what was it like for you? and you know, what were you doing that day? Uh, and then next question is what made him so special according to you? Cause you work with him very closely, right? Yes. Yes. So, um, I believe it was, a, it was, it was a weekend. It was either Saturday Sunday. or Sunday, Sunday. Sunday. Yeah. Um, I was, I think I was in my backyard. It was very, it was cloudy. It was overcast. I remember it was yeah. very cloudy. The sun wasn't even out. You can, the sun wasn't even peeking out. I mean, that's how heavy the clouds were. I remember that day. Um, and I was in, in my backyard and all of a sudden I get a text from a friend of mine and he says, is it true? Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, what do you mean? Is it true? Like I wasn't listening to the news. Mm -hmm. I wasn't listening to the radio. I was just outside. I think I was doing gardening or doing something in my backyard. And yeah. I'm like, is it, I'm like, well, what do you mean? What, 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 what's true? And then he texts Kobe. I'm like, I'm like what? And then he sends me the link, the TMZ link. And I'm mm -hmm. like, 
no, this I'm like, this can't be real, right? Fake so news. I'm like, yeah. yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, TMZ is probably fake yeah. news, blah, 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 you know. Now, granted, TMZ has is pretty reliable, but I'm like, no, nah, it's nothing. So I waited, and then more people start texting me. It's like, Marcos, it's true. Marco, what have you heard? I'm like, so then once more people start texting me, I'm like, okay, what's going on? So I won't go and I turn on the news, and but they still hadn't reported anything yet. I waited, I waited, maybe about 30 minutes into it. Then I see ABC News started reporting it. NBC yeah. News started reporting it. And then at that point, I'm like, okay, this is real. Mm-hmm. The, the interesting part is, I, I, you know, I still find it very hard to believe. And it was kind of hard to believe that it happened because Kobe had this persona of being invincible and being yeah. like indestructible. Like, that's like how when you meet him and, and you're around him, he, he, he gave you this, like, you believe that he do, dude's like, Dude's like Wolverine. It's nothing's gonna happen. You know, yeah. he just goes out there and he does his thing. He's just like this. He's a machine. You know, it's like the movie with um, with Rocky, Rocky Four, and and the Rock. Mm-hmm. He's a machine. You know, you can't beat him. That's who yeah. Kobe was. And for him, for it, for something like this, for him to go down, it was something that was very hard for me to believe. And you know, it's still, I still, it's still hard for me to believe that that you know he kind of passed away like that. Yeah. Um, but but it, you know, it was tough. And after that, you know, it took me a little while. Uh, to finally kind of come grips to grips with it because you know I worked with him for about nine years. Yeah. Um, closely. And you saw his progression, right, as a player too. Yes. I mean, yeah. I was with them during and starting in 08 with when we lost to Boston. We won the two championships. Um, and then eventually his, his final game at, at Staples Center and he finally retired. But he, even then you 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 kind of see that he probably still had a couple more years in him, but he was like, no, yeah. I think I'm done. Yeah. Um, out of all the people, I think he could have been the he could have been the Tom Brady of uh, of the NBA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. He was going, um, but but what you know what made Kobe Kobe is you know everybody talks about the mama mentality, yeah, and you know and and that was true, and a lot of people didn't I guess quite understand what that actually what that means and 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 kind of like you know it's one of those things where. The mom mentality is being mentally tough um, and, you know, do, doing kind of doing your job. And so to speak, you know, the one thing about him also is that he expected everybody to kind of bring their A game. And, and when I talk about everybody, I'm, I'm referring to everybody, not just the players, not just the coaches. He expected the training staff, the sports yeah. medicine staff to bring their A game, yeah. the equipment manager to bring their A game, the front office people, the ticket people. Everybody was part of this and it, he expected everybody to do the exact same thing. And, and, and do your job. And not only that, but maybe sometimes you have to go beyond uh, d- doing your job. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a story. My very first year mm-hmm. with him, uh, we traveled to Denver. And this is where I kind of quickly realized what he meant as far as the mama mentality and what you had to do as, as, as myself, as an athletic trainer, you know, yeah. as part of the team, I had to do my job. So we get to Denver and he goes to, he, uh, we had the game the next day. Um, we land at, at about the evening. He goes to um, the arena to just go get some shots up, comes yeah. back. And I get it. We get a call from his security guard and he says, Hey, you know, uh, Kobe wants a cold tub. Right. And I'm like, well, we are in the hotel room. We don't travel with a cold tub. I'm like, dude, you know, where do you want me to get the cold tub? You know, this is my first year. Yeah. That was my first reaction. Um, and I guess you can, he- you know, Kobe was in the, in the background and I think he could hear myself and, and, the, and the security guard kind of just talking back and forth and not necessarily arguing, but like, dude, you know, what do you want to do? You know, we don't travel, you know, blah, blah. All of a sudden I hear Kobe's voice. He's like, I don't want to know how rough the waters are. Just tell me when the boat gets in and hangs up. Right. Mm. And that's when I realized I'm like, I got to bring my A game. Yeah. <laughs> I got to do my job. 
<laughs> you know, you can't take no for an answer. Can't yeah. take no for an answer. Yeah. So um, our strength coach Tim DeFrancesco was had uh, was good friends with what with the young lady that was a, a yeah uh, athletic trainer. Oh yeah, you know Tim, athletic yeah, trainer yeah, with, um, with um, at the University of Denver. So he called her up and he she helped us out. He goes down there, gets the uh, gets in the cold tub and done. And we got the job done type of thing. But that that was kind of like the mom mentality kind of going there. Not only that, but here's the thing about the mom mentality. There's a book out there that I read. I don't know if you read it called um, Obstacle. Obstacle is, is uh, obstacle is the way, I think, or the, the mm-hmm. way is the obstacle. Meaning that whenever you have an obstacle, the way through it is through the obstacle. So in, this, in the book, it starts a story. And it starts about a story about a king. And he has his kingdom. And what he does, he puts his big boulder in the center of the, the castle where you go in and out, right? And he blocks the entryway. Now you could do three things. One, some people were like, oh, well, we're stuck here. We can't go anywhere. We're done. Second, yeah. you're like, okay, well, let's figure out, let's go around it. Let's climb it. Let's go around it. Let's, let, maybe let's open a new entryway. Let's kind of find a different way. Or the third way is you just go right through it. Yeah. And that was kind of like Kobe. That was kind of Kobe's the mom mentality. He always had obstacles in his way and he knew he had to go right through it. He didn't go around it. He didn't shy away from it. He went straight at it. Just like in the competition, whenever we had games, whoever it was, he didn't try to find, find a different way to go around. He went right through the obstacle type of thing. Yeah. You know? um, and that was kind of like the mom mentality. Yeah, he wasn't afraid of the challenge, right? I mean, in big games, he would show up. I mean, of cool. course, he had some bad games, but most of the time he was there. I mean, it was. Yeah, well, here's the funny part about it. Not only did he not shy away from the challenge, he wanted the challenge. He, like, he yeah. had, he wanted the challenge. Thing. You know, he, he kind of had the same uh, mentality as uh, Michael Jordan. I think that's why both of them are very alike. And yeah. I don't think you're going to find anybody else that, that, that compares to both Kobe and Michael. And mm-hmm. I remember Michael had made a comment, even Kobe made a comment one time in the training room about, you know, there was a whole talk about, you know, how teams, how players team up to try to win, you know, win games, stuff like that. You know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go team up with him so we can have a better squad, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A big three or something. Yeah. All right. I remember Kobe, Kobe and Kobe was like, no, why am I going to team up with somebody like that? I want to beat them. I don't mm. want to team up with them. I want to beat them. And I remember See. Michael had to say the same mentality. That's how Kobe had was his mentality. Like, I don't want to team up with so-and-so. I want to beat him. Um, On my own. That's how it was. Yeah. He wanted, he saw the challenge and he wanted to go straight to the challenge. Well, look, that's, that's an amazing story. So, look, we're we at the end of the, the podcast interview, but I want to thank you for your time. Great insights, great stories. So thank you very much. Thank you, Julian. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you. Thank you.